So Isaiah's a prophet who is, his time of prophecy is about 60 years long. He's spanning four different kings. And as we, as we look at Isaiah, he's a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah. Israel at this point has been split into two nations. Uh, we're about 200 years removed from Solomon's reign when God had told Solomon, because you have married all these wives from other lands and you're serving, uh, making sacrifices to these gods, I'm going to remove the kingdom from you. But I'm going to save one tribe and Jerusalem for David's sake. And so Isaiah is on the scene here. And this is a really tumultuous time. As we, as we look at the kings and chronicles and we see the order of these kings and we see their lives, this guy's good. This was a bad king. This king was good. This king was good. This king was bad, 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 good. And this guy reigned for six months. And this guy reigned for 52 years. I mean, it's just, it's all over the place. And the children of Israel and the people of Judah are just up and down. They follow God. They fall away. And the first part of Isaiah, the first uh, 39 chapters or so, speak about judgment on sinful people. And that's where we are, we find ourselves in chapter 30. But then the last part of Isaiah gives hope. It's a hope of a redeemer. Isaiah means Yahweh is salvation. God has made a way, in spite of this judgment and punishment for straying, there's a way back to him. So the four kings that Isaiah prophesied under, was a prophet under. Uh, king Uzziah was the first one. He was a godly king, very well fortified. He built up Jerusalem, built up the army, and then he got proud, tried to offer incense in the temple, was confronted by the high priest and 80 other priests, and God struck him with leprosy because of that. So his son Jotham was kind of reigning in his stead before Uzziah died and then took over the kingdom. He was also a godly king, but the people were still worshiping idols. And then Ahaz was a very evil king, and Syria defeated them. The northern kingdom, Israel, came down and defeated them. And... Uh, Massive losses there from, from Israel. They killed 120,000 men in one day. And after he died, we're now at Hezekiah. And Hezekiah is, is a good king. He's worshiping God. He's opening up the temple that Ahaz had completely shut down, restoring worship and sacrifices. And at that, this point, Assyria, there's kind of Syria was a world power. They were kind of, they were one of the world powers. Assyria was kind of the major dominant force, world force, on uh, the empire stage at this point. And this seems to be where chapter 30 is landing us based on what uh, the research I've done. 
So I would like to break this sermon down into several sections, and I'd like to read a few different sections of verses here and speak of them before moving on. Israel, Judah, because of Assyria and, and the world power that they were, and Assyria came into Judah twice, once early on in Hezekiah's reign and once 10 years later. And I'm not quite sure if this took place between those two or not, but it seems like Judah is still in alliance with Egypt at this point. So Judah doesn't feel like they can defend themselves against Assyria, so they decide to partner up with Egypt. Rather than returning from the sin that they're in, the, the idol worship that they've been in, and following God, they're trusting in Egypt, which is kind of ironic because that's the very place that God has delivered them from as a people, right? They've been in bondage. They've been in oppression. They've been in slavery to Egypt. God delivers his people out to their own promised land. And now they've turned their back on God. And they're going back to the Egyptians to try to solve their problems instead of going to God for deliverance. And God, through the pen of Isaiah here, is reprimanding them for that. I'm going to read Isaiah 30, verses 1 through 7 at this time. I'll be reading in the ESV this morning. Isaiah 30, verse 1. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, and who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your, to your humiliation. For though his officials are at Zoan and his envoys reach Hanes, Everyone comes to shame through a peace that cannot through a people, sorry, that cannot profit them. That brings neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace. An oracle on the beasts of the Negev, through a land of trouble and anguish, from where come the lioness and the lion, the adder and the flying fiery serpent? They carry their riches on the backs of donkeys and the treasures on the humps of camels to a people that cannot profit them. Egypt's help is worthless and empty. Therefore, I have called her Rahab, who sits still. So Judah finds themselves in a tight spot. They load up their donkeys and their camels with a whole bunch of money and they go down to Egypt to try to make an alliance with the Egyptians. And what happens? They pay the money, but the Egyptians really are not any help. 
Even though they're in the northern part of, they have, you know, Pharaoh has officials and envoys in the very northern part of Egypt, relatively close to Israel. He's, Israel, or rather Judah, is not going to be helped at all by Egypt because God is not there. Instead of trusting in the God who's miraculously delivered them in the past from Egypt and from many, many other enemies, they've tried to solve things on their own. They've forsaken God and trying to trust in a force that it cannot help them. Let's continue reading at verse 8 through verse 17. This is God speaking yet. Now go, write it before them in a table, and note it in a book, that it may be for the time to come forever and ever. For they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see. And to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Leave the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them, Therefore, this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall, bulging out and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant, and its breaking is like that of a potter's vessel that is smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments not a shard is found with which to take fire from the hearth or to dip up water out of the cistern. For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling, and you said, No, we will flee upon horses. Therefore, you shall flee away. And we will ride upon swift steeds. Therefore, your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you shall flee till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. The pretty damning words that God is asking Isaiah to write down. To write them down on a table for the people to see. Make a sign that the people can read it. Not only that, write it in a book for future generations to look at. This is what they've done. They have rejected me. They've been a rebellious people, unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord. It seems pretty ridiculous when you look at verse verses 10 and 11, how they're saying to the seers, 
hey, don't, don't see, like basically don't do your job, to the prophets, don't tell us anything about God. Tell us lies. That's what we want. We don't want to hear anything about God. Tell us falsehoods. Give us illusions. And leave the way yourself. Turn aside from the path. We don't want to hear any more about God. We don't want to hear any more about the person, the being who has saved us in the past. We're going alone here. We're doing this on our own strength. And what does God say? He says, because of this, your iniquity is going to be like a breach in a high wall. A wall that is, is bulging out. It's almost collapsing. Almost as if somebody goes up and pushes on it and the whole thing is going to fall just like that. My parents' place in New York growing up, our property bordered a pond that was, was a creek running through. They dammed it up back in the 1800s, put a pipeline in that went about a quarter mile downstream to a railroad grade. And they supplied water for the steam engines running that line. And one evening, us boys went swimming in another neighbor's pond. The, the pond right next to our house was not fit to swim in. It was kind of swampy. So we went swimming. Dad was away at a meeting. My mom and my sister went up to the neighbor's to get milk. And by the grace of God, my mom and my sister were delayed up at the farmer's place and were talking for a while. They were planning to go boating on the pond that evening. And while we're all gone, about a four foot by 10 foot section of the very bottom corner of the dam let loose. Just looks like somebody cut out about a four foot by 10 foot section, about six feet thick, concrete dam. And in no time, that pond was no longer a pond. It was just a muddy wasteland with dead fish and algae and about three feet of muck that you couldn't walk in for months. Sudden destruction. And that's what God is saying is going to happen to the people of Judah because they are trusting in themselves. Breaking comes very suddenly, in an instant. And like a potter's vessel that's smashed so thoroughly that there's not even any shard of pottery large enough for you to carry any water in or scrape or carry any cools from a fire in. Tiny little fragments, worthless clay. Utter destruction when they're relying on their own strength. In verse 15, we see God's invitation 
to them. In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. God is saying, would you turn back to me? Would you repent? Would you follow me? Would you trust me to take care of you? Were the Assyrians at this point a legitimate threat to the people of Judah? Absolutely. We have a world power going up against one tribe that had several cities, but primarily Jerusalem. Was it legitimate to be scared or fearful of that? In human reasoning, yeah, it certainly was. That's why they made an alliance with Egypt. Maybe they had a chance if them and Egypt got together. And God's saying, that's not what you need. You need to come back to me. You need to follow me again. In quiet confidence of me is your strength. The last four words of that verse are really tragic. But you were unwilling. God's extended an invitation. He's extended a way of deliverance for them. They know they're in a hard spot. God says, follow me. And they say, no. I don't trust you to do that. I don't trust that you'll be able to deliver us. I'm going to go it alone on my own strength. We'll flee upon horses, they say. They'll ride on swift horses, but the people that pursue them are also swift. Their efforts are futile. At just the sight of one soldier, one foreign soldier, a thousand of them will be scared. You're going to run away. All of you are going to run away at the threat of five. You're scared. And God's communicating here the futility of trying to preserve themselves through their own strength. What about us today? The story I've just described sound familiar sometimes? We know we have a problem. We got into the problem by following ourselves, our own sinful nature. And God says, will you follow me? Will you, will you turn to me? Will you trust me to be your leader, to be your guide, to be what you need in life? And even for those of us who are 
Christians who have accepted Christ? Are there situations we encounter where we don't see how something's going to come out or we're, we're tired, like Abraham, of waiting on God's plan and so we take things into our own hands? Or do we accept the invitation of God when He says in verse 13, sorry, verse 15, turn to me, trust me. In quietness, in faith, in trust, in my plan is your strength. A strength that's not coming from you. It's a strength that comes from the Lord. I had to ask myself, so I was studying for this, if God were to tell a prophet to write on a table, as he commanded Isaiah in verse 8, if God had to tell, if God told somebody to write down a testimony of my life, what would that table say? What would that book say? What would people in the future read about there? Would it be a testimony to trusting in God? Would it be a testimony of obedience to Him? Or would our lives be a warning? Would the table say, this is a rebellious people. These are people who are lying. Children. Children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord. What about you? What about me? And if we look at ourselves and the answer to what will be written on that table is negative, there's still time to change that. But one of the ingredients that has to be there is surrender and humility. It has to be an acknowledging that there is a problem. Judah acknowledged that there was a problem. They had a problem. They just turned to the wrong source for help. God says, turn back to me. And Judah says, no, we are going to turn to another worldly source, give them a bunch of money and see if the two of us can beat this problem. And the problem was not the Assyrians. They thought it was. But the problem was their lack of obedience to God. So they were addressing a symptom, not the problem here. 
be interesting to know what the story would say had they turned back to God and said, God, we were wrong. We've sinned. We've strayed from you. And we're coming back to you. And we're going to trust you to deliver us from Assyria. And they did that later. If we look at, I think it's chapter 37 of Isaiah. Israel did that. Hezekiah cried out to the Lord. And God came down. And in one night, 185,000 Assyrians were killed. I think it was the angel of the Lord uh, wiped them out. It's been a little bit since I looked at that account. But they did trust God later on. And God fought for them. God took care of the problem. Does that mean that we won't have hardships or difficulties or problems that look big or things that don't make sense to us as humans if we just follow God? No, but there can be a quietness and a trust in those times. Somehow God is working a bigger picture than what we can see right now. Repentance is a big theme of Jesus' ministry here on earth, his time on earth. And I'd like to turn to the Gospels and just look at that. So let's turn first to Matthew, the Gospel according to Matthew. And I'd like us to examine here what Jesus' words were. The first public words that we have recorded. Chapter 4 of Matthew, verse 17. John the Baptist is just put in prison. John the Baptist has been saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John's put into prison. And it seems like that's when Jesus realizes it's time for his ministry to start. What's the first thing he, that we have recorded that he says? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If we go to Mark, the first chapter of Mark, Verse 15. And saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now turn over to Luke yet. And Luke's account is a bit different. The first public words we have here are him quoting the prophet Isaiah, reading from Isaiah 49 and verse, chapter 61 as well. In Luke 4.18, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
So it's a little different than repentance here. But I think there's still an underlying theme. Who are the people that Jesus is coming to here? Who is he ministering to? It's the poor, it's the captives, it's the blind, it's the people being oppressed. And as we read the gospel accounts, who were the people that followed Jesus? Who were the people that became disciples, who believed him? By and large, it was the people who realized they had a problem. The people that were poor, the people that were blind, the people that were being oppressed, they knew they had a problem. They knew there was something beyond their control. And if they were willing to admit that problem, they could see the need of somebody to heal them. Who did not repent? We see the Pharisees and the scribes thinking they were good enough. They were following the law, the letter of the law, maybe not the spirit of the law. But where humans don't see a problem, we really don't see the need for a solution. So I believe the only way that we will be able to surrender, accept God's solution for sin, it's when the Spirit calls us and we recognize that we have a problem. That doing it on our own has not worked, is not working out. We're being destroyed by the enemy. We're trying to hold life together, but we're like a bulging wall. And at any moment, things can come apart. In Mark 2, there's an account where Jesus has just called Levi, the tax collector, to be a disciple. And he's eating at Levi's house with a number of other tax collectors and uh, what we might say lower society, sinners, people they looked down on in that day. And Mark 2.15 says, And it came to pass that as Jesus sat at meat in his house, Levi's house, many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eat with publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, how is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he saith unto them, They that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The scribes and Pharisees didn't recognize, they didn't admit that they had a problem. What about us today? Do we feel like we can do it on our own? Or do we recognize 
that we're part of the group that's qualified in saying all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Unless we identify as part of that group of people, we're really not going to have a fruitful life that's bringing glory to God. There's an element of surrender that's required. Last Sunday, Dean preached from Revelation, and I'd like to read the account of another church. Turn to Revelation 4. The church at Laodicea. The church that's lukewarm. I'm going to read verses 14 through 20. And for all of us here this morning, even those of us who are saved and feel like we're walking with Christ and in the power of His Spirit, I think this can still be a caution to us, a danger to us in our affluent society. I'll break in at chapter, yeah, chapter 3, verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither cold, hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say... I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. Do we say that we're rich, that we've prospered? We say that life is going okay. We have things under control. Or do we recognize just how hopeless our case is without Christ? Do we recognize the reality that we are poor? We are wretched. We are pitiable without Christ. I trust that we are mindful of that. That without Christ, we are hopelessly lost. I trust that we recognize that this morning. 
and that whether for the first time in our lives or whether in renewal each day as we wake up, if Jesus knocks, if we hear his voice, that we answer the call to surrender, to lay down ourselves and to trust him in all of life. We're willing to open the door and have fellowship with him. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He wants all of us to turn back from our own little castle that we've built, our little empire that we're trying to hold together and say, God, Satan is more powerful than I. Apart from you, I'm doomed. And as we go from rebellion and rejection to repentance and humility and surrender, God promises restoration, a right relationship with Him. Back to Isaiah 30. We'll read the last portion of chapter 30. Breaking in at verse 18. And I'll read through the end of the chapter. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. For a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore. But your eyes shall see your teacher. And your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way. Walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. Then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, Be gone. And he will give rain for the seed with which you sow the ground, and bread, the produce of the ground, which will be rich and plenteous. In that day your livestock will graze in large pastures, and the oxen and the donkeys that work the ground will eat seasoned fodder, which has been winnowed with shovel and fork. And on every lofty mountain and every high hill, there will be brooks running with water in the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. Moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days in the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people and heals the wounds inflicted by his blow. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger and in thick rising smoke. His lips are full of fury, and his tongue is like a devouring fire. His breath is like an overflowing stream that reaches up to the neck to sift the nations with the sieve of destruction and to, play, 
place on the jaws of the peoples a bridle that leads astray. You shall have a song, as in the night when a holy feast is kept, and gladness of heart, as when one sets out to the sound of the flute to go to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. And the Lord will cause his majestic voice to be heard and the descending blow of his arm to be seen. In furious anger and a flame of devouring fire, with a cloudburst and storm and hailstones. The Assyrians will be terror-stricken at the voice of the Lord when he strikes with his rod. And every stroke of the appointed staff that the Lord lays on them will be to the sound of tambourines and lyres. Battling with brandished arm, he will fight with them. For a burning place has long been prepared. Indeed, for the king it is made ready. Its pyre made deep and wide, with fire and wood in abundance. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of sulfur, kindles it. This passage is a really beautiful picture of a nation restored to God. The Lord is waiting for them to turn, to realize that what they're doing is not working out. They're going down a dead-end street. He wants to show mercy to you and I this morning. And even through the hard things of life, the adversity, the water of affliction, verse 20 says, your teacher is still going to be there. He's going to be visible. And your eyes will see him. Verse 21 is so beautiful. Your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. As we're restored to a correct relationship with God, this beautiful mental picture of God being right beside us, right behind us, guiding us on the path of life. And this is the way, walk in it. We have to choose to accept and obey. And when we do, the things of life that we're tempted with, the things in our lives that God shows us that are wrong, as we walk with Christ, Verse 22, the people of Judah, they'll defile their carved idols. They'll discard these other things that have been a problem. They'll scatter them as unclean things. And when God comes to judge Assyria, and when Sennacherib king of the Assyrians is burned. 
in spite of all that chaos and the judging of people, the people of Judah will have a song. A song in the night, like they're going up to Jerusalem on a feast day to worship, to praise God. Doesn't that sound like rest? In spite of the craziness, the day of great slaughter, and God comes with his burning anger and judges Assyria, there will be peace. They will have a song on their lips. And in an eternal sense, we can have the same today. We don't have to fear eternity when we've chosen to walk in the path that God has laid out. So this morning, are we trying to make it on our own? Or are we saying, God, I have a problem. I have a sinful nature. I can't do it without you. You're the only one who can deliver me from what I'm facing. Are we willing to turn back? To admit our sinful nature? Then they come in right standing with him. I don't know what your life is like this morning. I don't know whether you feel like a bulging wall, like your life is a house of cards that's about to come down. But God has a path for each one of us. And he wants to walk beside us. He wants a relationship with us each and every day. we only humble ourselves and submit to that. So I trust this morning that we say, God, I want you to tell me where the way is. I want you to show me, and I want to walk in that. The end of Revelation, Jesus says, Surely I come soon. And as we follow Christ, we can say the last part of that verse. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's bow our heads for prayer.